0: We are uh, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of James. You're in James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first six verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand so we can get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. James chapter 5, first six verses. I think I've shared this about every week we've been going through the book of James. I I appreciate that you come in week after week as we're going through the book of James to sometimes... There's some tough stuff to listen to. Hits you right in the face. And uh, I've shared this. I'd much rather teach on 1 Corinthians 13 and about God's love week after week. week. But sometimes we need to hear these things. And so um, I like to call James a drill sergeant. He's going to let us know what it's like. So James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James writes, Come now, you rich, Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. God bless you. Have a great day. You (laughs) You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Because of the time of year, I thought it appropriate to title my message this morning, Weep and Howl, a Scary Sermon. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word together. We recognize, Lord, it is your word. And it's something that you want to teach us in it and through it. And so we pray that we would have open hearts to receive what you have to say to us as a church. Uh, what you have to say to us individually, Lord, that we would uh, uh, just, Lord, be open to it. Holy Spirit, have your way in our lives this morning. And Lord, we do pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you today. They're not born again. They're, they've not come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. Lord, help them to see, first of all, their need for you to repent from their sins and give their life to you today. Thank you for this time that we can spend in your word together. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read a story about a taxi, uh, a man riding in a taxi, and he tapped the driver on his shoulder to ask him a question. Well, the driver screamed. He lost control of his car, nearly hit a bus, went up onto the sidewalk, stopped inches from a storefront window. And for a second, everything was quiet in the cab. Then the driver said, Look, pal, don't ever do that again. You scared the living daylights out of me. Well, the passenger apologized and said, I didn't realize that a little tap on your shoulder would scare you so much. The driver replied, Sorry, it's not really your fault. Today is my first day as a cab driver. I've been driving a hearse for the last 25 years. As we come to chapter 5, James is focusing his, his attention on the wealthy of his days. Those, To those that these words apply to, it would scare the living daylights out of them. In fact, these words are so strong that many commentaries pass over these first six verses with a simple little summary statement. Other writers simply say they do not know what to do with such burning comments. See, James has some really strong things to say to the rich landowners at that time that were ripping off the early Christians. He says, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Talks about their gold and their silver corroding. It'll eat your flesh like fire. You have fattened your hearts for the slaughter. Now, James has already mentioned the rich in other parts, three other really sections on uh, three other different occasions. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the rich are obviously believers. Then in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 and verse 6, the rich are non-believers. Now in chapter 5, we're dealing, it's generally assumed we're dealing with non-believers. Wealthy individuals outside of the church, uh, Christian church. Again, like I said, wealthy farm owners who owned large tracts of land and were exploiting the, the poor by not paying them. They'd work all day and then not pay them. To which, uh, you know, many of these these people that were working were part of the church. Now we know that James has had some harsh words to say to the church, but he has even harsher words to say to those seeking to rip off the church. But let me say this as well: James' words here are meant to encourage us as well, uh, and and them that they're being treated so unfairly to let them know that one day justice will be served. And he's also going to show us that we shouldn't place such a high value upon wealth, upon material things, nor to envy those that have it. This is really, I think, a timely message for us as we are all living on the verge of a a recession and the cost of so much is is going way up just to live every single day. And maybe we, we feel we're being ripped off by our government with the ungodly policies that they're making. The financial times we're living in can be tough to make and people are struggling. And as a result, we can have that temptation to sin, to be envious, to be uh, covetous towards those who have. But then the other side of that coin can also be, if God has blessed you financially during times like these, that has that that tendency maybe to want to hoard and keep everything to yourself, just well, I don't know what's going to happen. That's why we need to pray Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. Lord, Help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I am poor, I may still and thus insult God's holy name. I think the temptation, really for all of us, is, is to, to want just a little more than what we have. Years ago, the richest man... At the time, 1913, was a, a man by the name of John D. Rockefeller. He was worth 900 million dollars. Today, that that equivalents to about 27 billion dollars. John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much money is enough. He answered, "Just a little bit more than I have." Sadly, Rockefeller wouldn't even make the top 10 list of richest men in in the world today. Elon Musk is sitting at a 210 billion, compared to Rockefeller's 27 billion. My point is people are never satisfied apart from Jesus Christ. And the world we're living in today is always pushing us to, to buy this and to buy that. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll finally be happy. And there's this huge push for material things, which makes this sermon applicable because James is going to warn us about setting our hearts and our minds on material things. I mean, what is materialism? Materialism is not just having material things. It's having a sinful attitude towards the things that you have. Now because of that, I want to look at three things this morning concerning materialism if you're taking notes. Number one, the cost of materialism. Number two, the clues of materialism. And then we'll close with the cure for materialism. Listen, God's primary concern isn't how much money you have in the bank or how many cars you own or how big your house is. God's concern is your attitude towards the things that you do have. Because if you have a wrong attitude towards what you have, you can be poor and still be a materialist. One commentator wrote this, a materialist is someone who has taken gold and turned it into God and then expects gold to do only what God can do. So how do I know if if I'm a materialist? Well, when you look at what God has given to you and somehow decide that it's all come about by your ingenuity and your own ability and all you're, you're doing and that God had nothing to do with it, then you're on dangerous ground. You've lost proper perspective. Now to see if you've lost proper perspective, think back maybe when you had fewer possessions. Did you have more time for God back then? Now that you have more possessions, do you have less time for God? So I want to make it clear there's nothing wrong with material possessions as long as they don't possess you. There's some notable saints throughout scriptures that were wealthy. Abraham, Job, David, Josiah. Uh, and Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, for example. Furthermore, this is not a word here against riches, per se. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. Actually, it says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Money is not moral or immoral. You might say money is amoral. <laughs> There's no... Evil in money, there's no good in money. It's the use of it that makes it good or bad. Depends on what you do with it. It's been said money is like manure. If you spread it around, it does a world of good. But if you pile it up, it stinks to high heaven. (laughs) The idea is to take what God has given to us and spread it around. But James here, his focus is more on those who, who gain their wealth in an ungodly way. and and making that wealth the center of their lives, and they failed to use it for the benefit of others. Again, materialism isn't measured by your wealth or lack of wealth, but your attitude towards it. And this brings us to point number one, the cost of materialism. James says the cost is high. Look at verse 1. Come now, you you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Words weep and howl is the same Greek word used for the shrieks that are heard in hell. It's a picture of this sobbing lament added with repeated howling as they face the final judgment for their actions. The miseries that are going to come upon them. This is radical what James is saying here. We ought to let the horror of this sink down into our hearts. These words suggest that a forgotten truth. The wealth is not an advantage. Wealth can be a spiritual handicap. Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall. Let me put it in the New Living Translation. Trust in your money and down you go, but the godly flourish like leaves in spring. Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount said, No man can serve two masters, either he'll hate the one or, or love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But people who are caught up into materialism can and should anticipate Misery. Because they're flying in the face of God's plan. Not because they're rich, but because they're so so seduced into the corruption that comes along with wealth and the addictive desire for more and more. That's why James says in verses 2 and 3, look at verses 2 and 3, your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and the corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire you have heaped up for treasures in the last days. Judgment is going to come. J. Vernon McGee, in his commentary, wrote of this irreligious farmer who gloried in the fact that he was an agnostic. He wrote a letter to the local newspaper saying, Sir, I have been trying an experiment on a field of mine. I plowed it on Sunday. I planted it on Sunday. I cultivated it on Sunday. I reaped it on Sunday. I hauled it into my barn on Sunday. And now, Mr. Editor, what is the result? I have more bushels to the acre in that field than any of my neighbors have had this October. Well, the editor wasn't a religious man himself, but he published the letter, and then he wrote below it, God does not always settle his accounts in October. Very true. James says there's a day coming where all accounts need to be settled, where your love for riches and material things, it's going to cost you. Now, James wrote this, we believe, somewhere around AD 45 or 50, possibly AD 60, But it was prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Titus the Roman came in and destroyed Jerusalem as it has never been destroyed before. He flattened it. The Christians and the Jews he hated and it didn't matter if you were rich or poor. He was going to bring it down. And let me tell you, when he got through with it, there were no rich Jews left. They'd either been killed or they'd been brought into slavery and all the riches they had had been destroyed, lost, or confiscated. So it's kind of a prophecy of what James is saying, but it's a twofold prophecy. Because we also know there's coming a day when God will judge those who have put their priority on wealth and possessions over relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think the horrors of hell should make anyone turn from their sin and turn to Christ. But for those who have made money their God, they don't give it a second thought. That's why James is so in your face with these words to these godless rich landowners taking advantage of these poor Christians. Judgment is coming. And again, it's not that they had wealth, but it's how they got it. They stole from the poor. That's why James says, again, back in verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. In those days, your clothes was a measurement of a person's wealth. And many poor people only had maybe four or five pairs of clothes For for a lifetime. But the rich, they could afford a closet full. So James says again in verse 3, All your wealth will be a witness against you. will eat your flesh like fire. Again, there's coming a day when those whose whole life is centered around stealing from the poor to gain more and more will have to answer to the Lord for their actions. It will be a witness against them. They'll get what's coming to them. I think of the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. Uh, Lazarus the beggar went to paradise while the rich man went to hell. In hell, the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus over. Hey, send Lazarus over uh, with some water to cool my tongue in the flames. But this is what Abraham said to the rich man. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. See, he never got around to taking care of his soul and it cost him eternity. I think also of Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 18 through 27, and the rich young ruler. And this love for wealth cost him heaven, cost him a a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wouldn't give it up to follow the Lord. You know, we had in America here many years ago two men who were billionaires who really lived, really are an example of futility of riches. You know, you can't take it on ahead. But these two men, they were remarkable men. They had made great financial empires one if you remember was howard Hughes you got to be kind of older to remember him but but in his last days he died a recluse all alone in a dark hotel room in Las Vegas all the money that he had just didn't seem to do him very good at all he left it all the other man uh, john paul getty was reported in the press to have made this statement i'd give all my wealth for just one happy marriage see that's what materialism caught it cost you But not just physically, spiritually as well. God says there's a price to be paid for the sin of materialism. Now, what is that? Well, let's get point number two, the clues of materialism. What are some of the clues that we might be caught up in this materialism? Well, verse three again, James says, you have heaped up treasures in the last days. So a good clue of someone caught up in materialism is one who hoards. See, the people that James was talking about were hoarding their riches. They They were hoarders. My wife and I, we were looking through videos last week and we caught uh, an episode of Hoarders. I haven't seen the show in a while. So we stopped and we watched it. Oh, it's so disgusting. I can't believe in my mind that a person can live with all this stuff around. And then I'm watching this thing and I'm thinking, why on earth does a person like this have nine cats living with them on top of that? I mean, the stink and the filth and it's just hoarding on and on and they're trying to clean up. Oh. Oh, don't take that. I need that. Oh, it's horrible. But you see, that's a sign of someone who's materialistic. It comes to finance and money, they're hoarding it. They're trying to get as much as they can. Can't, can't think of doing without it. Now, hoarding, let me tell you, is different than saving. God calls us to be good stewards over the funds that we have. He wants us to be savers. In fact, Proverbs 13, says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Not to his kids, but the grandkids. Just for my, my kids would know that. Um. <laughs> Saving is not a sin. Hoarding is. So how can you tell if you're a saver or a hoarder? The difference is whether your accumulation is tied to a legitimate biblical purpose. The Bible gives several reasons for, for us to save. To invest in the work of the Lord to provide for our need, to provide for our family's future, to have something on hand in times of emergency, to help provide for the needs of others. But again, a hoarder just collects and stores out of greed simply to accumulate more and more wealth for him or herself without any regard for others. We might have heard of the story of this woman named Bertha Adams. When she was 71 years old, she died alone in West Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday, 1976. The coroner's report read, cause of death, malnutrition. After wasting away to 50 pounds, she could no longer stay alive. When the state authorities came in to do their preliminary investigation of her place, they found a a, a veritable pig pen, the biggest mess you can imagine. One seasoned inspector declared he'd never seen a dwelling in greater disarray. The The pitiable woman had begged food from neighbors and gotten what clothes she had from the Salvation Army, From all appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow, but such was not the case. Amid all the the jumble of her unclean, disheveled belongings, two keys were found, which led officials to safe deposit boxes at two different banks. The discovery was absolutely unbelievable. The first box contained over 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and, and solid financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash totaling over $200,000. The other box had no certificates, only more currency, $600,000 to be exact. Adding the net worth of both boxes, the woman had over a million dollars. Bertha Adams' hoarding was tragic, and her death was an unusually grim testimony to the shriveled focus of her life. Her great wealth did her no good whatsoever. But I meant proper youth of what, what she had could have meant good health for her and many others around her. Again, there's nothing wrong with saving for retirement or in the case you can't work or something for a rainy day. But to accumulate wealth just to, to talk about what you have, it, it's the sin of hoarding. Because that's what a hoarder does. They collect and they store out of greed simply to accumulate more and more without any regard for others say, well, Pastor Tom, I have no problem with hoarding. I can't even hoard if I wanted to. I don't make enough. Well, let's look at it from a different way. Money isn't the only thing you can hoard. What about that closet? That stuff full of all those clothes that you never wear. Many of our closets are so full of clothes and shoes, you name it, it's in the closet so much that we can't even get in the closet. But rather than being a clothes hoarder, wouldn't it be better for us to give those things away to someone who has a need? Maybe you're hoarding your talents to yourself. God has gifted you with being able to work with your hands in construction or or fixing cars, but you spend all your time building and improving and fixing your home and your car and and, and instead of going out and helping others where God would have you to be used. All sorts of areas in our lives that we can become hoarders to, which is a clue that we're, we're caught up in materialism. What's another clue? Well, the sin of using others. Yeah, it's bad to hoard material things. It's even worse to use people to get what you want. So you decide you don't want to be a hoarder, but maybe you need to get some work done around your house. So you get someone to come out and, and say, alright, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll charge you $200 to fix this door, whatever it is. And they come out and you say, well, you know, I got this door, but could you fix the window? And, and, you know, I got this other thing over here that needs fixing this hole over here. What about that? And they, do you know anything about cars? But I'm just going to pay you for the, for, I just called you out here for, for the, for the door. And you're using people to, to get what, what you want to accomplish your purpose. And that's what James is saying what's happening here in verse 4. He says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sibirah. The laborers, they, they, uh, the guys working in the field, again, they worked all day long through the hot sun just to provide for their families. They go to get their paycheck and, and the landowner's nowhere to be found. He's not there. Listen, in those days, it was important for that worker to be paid each day so he could provide food for the family daily. To hold back from paying that worker for even a few days meant that the family would go hungry. Here James is saying to the victims of this fraud, don't you worry. God hears your cries. And they're going to get what's coming to them. See, the phrase, the Lord of the Sabbath means the Lord, the Lord of the armies of the Lord of hosts. In other words, God is going to deal with these thieves. Now, we may not be in a position that we would rob people by holding back from paying them for the work they've done, or at least I would hope not, but what about using people in other ways? Taking advantage of people that, that show kindness to you, trying to manipulate or control people for your own personal gain. How about selling a house? This is often we're tempted with, that you don't disclose everything about it. Yeah, you know the HVAC was about to go out, the pipes were leaking, the roof that had shingles missing on it, but, but, you know, I I, I can't say that, you know. uh, Well, I'm giving them a deal on the house. No, that's taking advantage of people. See, someone who's a materialist will look for all sorts of ways to use people to get what they want. Listen, if God has blessed you financially, then two things ought to be prevalent in your life. First, you should be thankful. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. So it's God who gives you power to get the wealth, so you should be thankful. But secondly, God's blessings in your life ought to make you more helpful, more willing to reach out and help others with the resources that God has blessed you with. But again, James says that it wasn't happening. These people, they, they, were, they, they got their wealth by fraud. They're not paying their workers or ripping people off. God takes that very seriously. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5.18, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Even when God gave the law to Moses, it was very clear that a worker was to, to be paid for the work the same day so he could feed his family. Otherwise, a swift judgment would come. And so here James is saying to the Christian, hang in there, judgment is coming. Let me give you another clue to what a materialist looks like. The first clue was the one who hoards. The second clue is one who who uses others for their own financial gain. The third clue to someone caught up in the materialism is they will practice the sin of indulgence. Look at verse 5. You have lived on this earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Hey, man, we got all this, so let's just party and party. Let's have a party today and party tomorrow and party the next day. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a party. But the true materialists, they live for the next party. And good times are, are, are their main attraction in their life. And, and God is an afterthought if it's a thought of all. James says, you fatten your hearts as in the day of slaughter. He's referring to the camp that the people would fatten up for the big party. This is really fattening up their life for the day of judgment. And, and really the final clue of the materialist, the sin of perverting justice. Look at verse 6. To these sin, sinfully rich people, he says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. So the righteous person couldn't resist the rich people. They didn't have the finances to take legal action. And the city didn't offer a public attorney on top of the fact that the rich had bought the courts and the judges so there wouldn't be a fair trial even if they could take them to the courts. But we need to remember what James is going to tell us when we get to verse 16 of this chapter. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. See, other than leave us without doing anything, we can do something. The righteous person's cry for justice does not fall on deaf ears. God doesn't call us to take the law into our own hands. He's called us to get down on our knees and pray for that person who's taken advantage of you. I don't know what caused that man to attack Nancy Pelosi's husband this last week, but violence is never an answer. Prayer is. When we look at our government today and people like the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, buying billboards across the nation with scripture on it to invite women to the state to get an abortion. It's horrifying. It's frustrating. And yet we should speak out against it. And some have. Pastor John MacArthur of Southern California wrote an open letter to him condemning what he has done and and encouraging him to repent of his sin before judgment comes. I encourage you to go online and, and read it. But violence is never the answer. We must know, though, that the righteous person's cry for justice does not fall on deaf ears. God knows what's going on. He sees what's happening in man's hearts. And unless they repent and turn from their sin, justice will be served. Our responsibility as a church is to pray. Talk to God about it. 2 Peter two nine tells us the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So James says God who commands heaven's armies will take the situation into his own hands. So now we come to the good part, the cure for materialism. What can we do to make sure that we're being we're not being drawn into this materialistic society really? First it begins with not being self centered. Don't be self centered. There's a, a saying that says the smallest package in the world is a person wrapped up in himself. A self centered person is a miserable person. I read an illustration of this in a, in a story. It's called How to Be Miserable. It reads, Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people who are not grateful to you for favors shown them. Never forget a service you have rendered. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible for others, and you will be absolutely miserable. It's true. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. See, one of the key issues in dealing with self-centeredness is, where is your treasure? That's what we've been talking about. See, Jesus is speaking against the self-centered. James is speaking against the self-centered hoarding of material possessions. More importantly, Jesus is telling us not to even have our focus on earthly wealth because eventually it's all better burn. Can't take it to heaven. Instead, when we do think about our money and our possessions, we need to think in the terms of using what God has given to us to bring more people into the kingdom of God. What can I do with the finances that God has given me to, to reach more people for Christ? See, that's being Christ-centered, not self-centered. If the things you have are only for your use on the earth, then when you get to heaven, and that spiritual bank book is open to see your spiritual rewards, it just may be an awful thing you're going to see. Insufficient funds. Zilts. Nada. <laughs> zero. See, folks, this stuff on this earth will stay on this earth. Only what we do for eternity will go with us into eternity. That leads us to a second cure for materialism. First, don't be self-centered. Secondly, acknowledge that God is the owner of all your possessions. Listen, the Bible says God created the world and everything in it. Everything. That includes you and me. He owns it all. And if I recognize that God is the owner of everything I have, well, then what happens to God's stuff, it's His responsibility. Certainly, I want to be a good steward over the things He's given to me to use, but they belong to Him. And, and providing for me and what I need is also His responsibility because uh, He owns me. He takes care of the things uh, that He owns. Now, even though you may think you want to control your stuff, you don't. You can't control what happens. You can't keep the rust and the moths away. Thieves may come in and steal all you have. The stock market may take a plunge and take all your fortune with it. But if you're using your wealth to lay up heavenly treasures, and then the glory of God is involved and God is going to take care of you. God doesn't allow moths or thieves to mess up with his stuff. Inflation, recession, don't upset God's plan. Stock market doesn't determine what happens to the things of God. James is, is so explicit with his pounding indictments of the money mad, unbelieving world. And though this characterizes the world without Christ, we must never imagine ourselves to be immune from it. We must ask ourselves, Do I hoard? Am I guilty of overaccumulation of wealth? Have I or even now am I defrauding someone? Is there financial deception in my life? Have I given in the self-indulgence in the world? See, the, day, the key to a healthy Christian life is daily commitment to the Word of God and allowing God's Word to change us. We must honestly do so for, the, for our soul's sake and really for the sake of the church. You know, many of us, you know, by comparison to, to, to other countries, all of us are rich. I mean, God has blessed our nation. God has blessed us. But with that wealth comes a responsibility. So how then should we live? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul, the apostle, answers that same question for us to, to, in, in, to Timothy, the young Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, and verse 17. First he gives a warning, and then he gives a solution. The warning, verses 9 and 10. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, we read this already, is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But verse 17, encouragement. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that true? God richly provides everything we need for our enjoyment. May God's word find a place in our hearts this morning. See, the cure for materialism is crucial. Again, Jesus said, for where your treasure is there, your heart is also. What are you treasuring in your heart right now? Is your heart totally sold out for Jesus Christ? We're told in Psalm 62.10, don't make your living by extortion or put your hope in stealing. And if your wealth increases, don't make it the center of your life. It's okay to prosper, but don't let your heart be taken over by the material things that God has allowed you to have. See, the Christian brother or sister who learns how to overcome the problem of materialism and handle their possessions God's way will be the believer that's blessed the most and growing in the image and likeness of Christ. You know, Paul, he learned whatever state he was in to be content. First, uh, Philippians 4.11, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content, I know how to be abased, I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. No, God is in control. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 13, 5. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. There's a story of an old man who asked this young man a question. He said, what are your plan for life? The young man replied, well, I, I plan to go to college and get a good education so I can get, can get a good job and make lots of money. What then? The old man asked. Well, then I'm going to get married and raise my children and send them to the best possible college so they can get a good education and get good jobs. And what then? asked the man. Well, after my kids are gone, my wife and I will travel around the world, then we'll retire and live off of our investments we've made. That's fine, the old man continued. But what then? Well, when it's all over, I guess I'll die. The old man looked at him and said, And what then? And that's a question that a lot of people can't answer today. But we need to answer it for them. Because one day we will all stand before Jesus Christ. And on that day, it will not matter how much you you owned on this earth. It will all be left behind. And all that will matter is what we sent on ahead. And the question God will ask you is, what did you do with my son Jesus Christ? And I believe that day is coming very soon. See, back in verse 3, James says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. James believed he was living in the last days, and I think it's it's good for every church to believe that they're living in the last days that Jesus could come back at any moment because he can't. Listen, if God does bless you financially, that's great. Praise the Lord, it's awesome, but no, we must use it always for eternal purposes. When we recognize the material world is rapidly passing away and only those things that are eternal will last, it changes everything. I think we've all heard this this uh, saying before: "Only one life will soon be passed." Only what's done for Christ will last. One last thing. As we close, God wants all of us. Every part of our being. A lot of Christians today feel if they just give you know, the time once a week to the Lord, maybe drop my offering in a the box there in a the bag and sing some worship songs, listen to a sermon every now and then. And I'm good to go for the rest of the week. And I say, well, I certainly don't rip people off and I don't hoard money. I give to the Lord. Listen, God doesn't need your money. God wants all of you. God wants all of me. 1 Samuel chapter 15. There's an account of King Saul. He had been instructed to go out and wipe out this this wicked people. He was commanded to not capture any of them. Don't take any of their livestock. Everything was to be destroyed. Saul goes out. But when he comes back, Prophet Samuel shows up. And uh, speaking for the Lord, he says, uh, Saul, what is that i hearing there in the background? <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, uh, oh, well, Saul says, I, I did what the Lord said. But I also did bring back agat king of Amalek, also. And, and I, I brought some sheep back because I'm going to sacrifice it to the Lord. Listen, whenever there's a but, be careful. <laughs> I did what you said, but. No, Saul didn't do what the Lord instructed him to do. And so Samuel said this to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is in iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. I want to close with this. Back in the late 70s, there was a songwriter, many of you my age remember, Keith Green. Very popular. uh, um, There's a song he wrote that really shows the heart of God when it comes to to money and the life of the believer. And the lyrics are, are from the perspective of God speaking, and I won't sing it, which you can be thankful for, but I'm going to read them to you. I want to put them up on the screen so they just really hit our heart. It begins with this. He sings, To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. While you speak of grace and my love so sweet, how you thrive on milk but reject my meat. And I can't help weeping of how it will be if you keep on ignoring my words. While you pray to prosper and succeed, but your flesh is something I just can't feed. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sunday and Wednesday nights. Because if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. And I'm coming quickly to give back to you according to what you have done. Folks, my, my prayer is that we can live our lives in such a way that on that day that we stand before the Lord, that each one of us in this room this morning can hear the words of Jesus, found in Matthew 25, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's my prayer for us. Finally, do you have a relationship with the Lord? Because that's where it all starts. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't know that you're, if you don't have your sin forgiven, you're heading down a path that's going to bring destruction no matter what's going on in your life. You'll end up separated from God for all eternity. You're, you're out there on your own, trying to provide, trying to do everything on your own. The Lord says, I'm here for you. I died for you upon the cross. Come to me, confess your sin, I will forgive you. I will allow you to, 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 to have a new start, a fresh start in life. I will place my Holy Spirit inside of you to lead you, to guide you. I will provide for you. You'll have an abundant life. And then when you die, I'll take you home in heaven to be with me for eternity. I mean, what, what a deal. So if you've not given your life to Christ, I pray that you not leave here without making that commitment to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You For the time that we spent in your word today. And Lord, I pray that these truths really hit to our heart, Lord. I know it's a hard message to preach. It's a hard message to receive. But Lord, it's your word. And you have a place and a time for it this morning. And that means that we have something to receive from it. So Lord, these truths as we've looked at, Lord, help us to apply them to our lives. Help us to be a giving church, Lord, a loving church to have you the focus of our lives and not be given to the things of of materialism in this world that are so tempting. And finally, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you to be born again today, that they would see their need for you and turn to you today. While our heads are bound and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? just want to offer salvation to you to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Just raise your hand so I can see it. I'll pray for you. Father, thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, fill us, Lord, to be good stewards over the things you've given to us, to your glory, to your honor, to your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and do one last song together.